0: Hello, people. This is the Extra Spicy Podcast. I am Justin Phillips.
1: And I'm Soleil Ho. On this show, we talk about food and what it all means by speaking with people in the Bay Area and beyond who are writing and thinking about how what we eat shapes us and connects us. On this episode, we speak with Adalia Cole, an adult industry professional in the Bay Area and owner of the
2: popular food blog, Hungry Hungry Hooker. Food and the adult industry are so much about pleasure and comfort and hedonism.
0: And we'll give you some advice on your questions about food and restaurants.
2: Dear Spicy, what should the food industry
1: look like after the pandemic?
0: Ooh, there's like a thousand answers to this.
1: Some of you might be wondering, like, why are you guys talking to a sex worker? But I think that she has a lot of really interesting things to say about the connections between food and sex and like food service and like adult service. She's also like one of the really most interesting food reporters that's out there. Even though she's not like a traditional food reporter, she does a lot of reporting on food, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think she's got so many amazing and fascinating things to say about the parallels between those industries. And I really hope that you, if you know very little about that industry, learn a lot from this thanks for joining me on the show today. Thank you for having me. So before we start, would you mind just telling our listeners your name, your occupation, and your
2: pronouns? Uh, Sure. Uh, My name is Adalia, and I am an adult industry professional in the Bay Area, and I also run the Food Instagram and I guess now a website, Hungry Hungry Hooker. So
1: this is a really interesting pairing of interests, right? Like you you have a day job, like many food bloggers and, you know, influencers or like people who are really into food. For me, what's interesting is that they're both kind of at the confluence of consumption, which I find really like I don't know. It's fun. It's cool. It's interesting. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot more relatable than someone who's like a data analyst during the day and then they go to like Michelin starred restaurants by night. That's
2: a little bit less relatable, maybe. Well, I think both things, food and uh, the adult industry, are so much about pleasure and comfort and hedonism. And those things go really well hand in hand. And I think there's a lot of correlation or at least similarities between working as an escort and working front of house and fine dining.
1: Yeah. Tell me more about those similarities, because you've worked in the restaurant industry.
2: I have. I've never worked in fine dining, but I did work in restaurants for, I guess, from the time I was about 14 to the time I was maybe 22. And I was also doing sex work concurrently. Uh, for a lot of that time, because I think as we all know, uh, the cost of living in the Bay Area is astronomical. And despite the fact that I loved working in food, although I mostly worked in kitchens, uh, but a little bit front of house at, you know, somewhere that was kind of like fancy, fast, casual, um, but but really never anywhere at certainly nothing like Michelin start or world's 50 best or anything like that. Um, although I love eating at those places, but I think that, service at that level and sort of the upper echelon of escorting have a lot of commonalities um just as far as you're dealing with rich people you got to be massaging rich people's egos all day long (laughs) um and things are that there is a very like exacting level of service and kind of things that you need to do and A similar clientele that you're dealing with. There are some differences too, because even though both people are honestly, I guess, the help to these very, very wealthy people for the most part, although I will say I do also have some very lovely clients who are working class, who like save up to see me, and who I'm so thrilled and always really, really incredibly grateful that they choose to spend time and money with me. But There is the difference in that there is the optics of like, I'm still out on a date with someone. So maybe the way that I'm treated is a little bit different, but for me, there is a level of performance involved. And I know that I'm not on a real date with someone like I would be in my personal life. Although I do have a great fondness for a lot of my clients, especially at this point. And I do have a, a lot of clients now that I have a much more natural, real relationship with. But, you know, it, it is still a paid service that I am performing.
1: For sure. It's a lot like it makes me think of because I worked in retail, you know, and food a lot, too. And you perform a lot. Right. You can't really have a bad day because that cuts into your actual income you know, your tips go down or, you know, whatever, or, you know, you're sent home um, because you're grumpy and you can't smile for the customer. And I assume it's pretty similar in that way.
2: Yeah. I mean, my husband works in restaurants still and we often sort of joke about the fact that I'm sucking literal dick and he's sucking metaphorical dick, (laughs) you know, and it's, (laughs) you have to be on and happy to see someone and smiling and thinking about their needs and, their wants and fulfilling those things, uh, even if you're having a really shitty day.
0: I feel like that might have been the realest quote I've ever heard (laughs) on a food podcast. Are you
1: overwhelmed? Is it a lot?
0: Yeah, my, my, my brain is exploding. I do love the idea of discussing, or I guess maybe drawing a parallel, like a through line between sex work and retail work. So what, what do you think about that?
1: You know, I think that it's super interesting to hear cross-industry solidarity. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. It's really, really cool. She's all about that. And of course, right? She is a worker. <laughs> Just because her work is not what we consider, we as in like society at large, right, considered to be respectable or above board because we've criminalized it. Right, um,
0: right, right, right.
1: Doesn't mean she doesn't have really poignant and like really interesting things to say about labor and what it means to be a worker right now.
0: I mean there are things that all industries go through. If you strip everything else away, like whatever your perspective may be of uh what is only a fraction of what Adalia does as a uh, as a person. Like if you strip all that away, like across the industries, like workers all want the same things. Like we want to be paid better. Um we want our work situations both physically and mentally to be better. Um You know, she has a great perspective on all of this. Like she's, she crosses so many lines, I think.
1: Yes. And I think the fact that she's married to a restaurant worker and she's worked in restaurants herself, she has those opportunities to make those parallels. And I think that's also why she gets along with so many restaurant people too. I think on her Instagram, especially, you'll see a lot of interaction with sommeliers and servers and chefs and cooks. They all are hip with it, which is cool. The more someone pays for a restaurant experience, it's like an amusement. It's a ride. It's the kind of thing where, like, you're paying X amount, so you better have a really great time. And it better be amazing. And if it's not, like, for some reason, I think that feels like more of a, like, disrespect, almost. Or, like, a violation, which I find really funny when it comes to, you know, money things. If we're looking at a Venn diagram, right, of the people who go to fine dining and the people who go to sex workers, um... Is there a center to that diagram? I mean, I think it's
2: just people with money who want to pay for, I guess, a luxurious experience. I mean, I think that just because of the access to the funds to do those kind of things, I mean, that that's probably the biggest part of the Venn diagram is that it's people with money. I think for me, I have found there is a huge, a huge overlap but that also is probably skewed by the fact that my branding is so heavily influenced by how much I love to eat, how much I love to cook, my love for restaurants, and then I talk about that stuff all the time, and because of that, I find a lot of clients who also love to do those kind of things, and you know, I do a lot of stuff where I'll set up just like a really elaborate food tour for people in the few different cities where I feel comfortable and knowledgeable enough about the dining scene where I can do that and I know enough chefs and I can you know do all these special little things um and so because I do that and because I do like private chef dates and that kind of stuff I I tend to get quite a lot of people who love fine dining and who want to do those kind of things but I have a lot of friends who's Branding has nothing to do with fine dining, other than maybe occasionally posting photos of their meal. And they still do a lot of that stuff. So I think it really has to do with uh, the financial class of people and what is normal for that financial class as far as the overlap.
1: That's really cool that, like, that's part of your branding is that you appeal to gourmands. I think that's amazing.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it's been a really healthy thing to do in my work life because I tend to have the kind of clients who are really interested in the same things. So there's always something, there's always a focal point of things we can get excited about together. Whereas, you know, I do have a lot of friends who, you know, it's like any job. You see people who you love and you see people who you loathe you know and and I think that's just like working in restaurants you have regulars that you are so stoked to come sit in your section and that you'll come and bring little extra free stuff to because seeing that person makes you feel good and I'm very lucky that I'm at a place in my career where If I don't like someone and I loathe them, I never have to see them again. And I feel very lucky to have incredible, wonderful repeat clients who I so genuinely look forward to seeing. But certainly earlier in my career, I saw a lot of shitty people I didn't like. It's it's a service industry and hospitality industry position. Just like working. I mean, it's not just like working in a restaurant, but there are a (laughs) lot of correlations.
1: I think the metaphor is pretty potent all around. and. You've also become a regular at a lot of luxury restaurants around the Bay Area, right?
2: Yeah. And I, I think that there's uh, there's another point that I want to touch on, which is that the, restaurant, the community of people working in restaurants are also a lot of freaks and not, I don't want to say outcasts, but there is like a lot of weirdos in the industry, just like there's a lot of weirdos in my industry. And I've always felt even beyond when I was working in restaurants, very accepted by that community. Maybe at most kind of had a little bit of a feeling that I was like a little bit of an interesting oddity, but I've never felt persecuted by anyone who works in a restaurant for my job, which is, you know, often as far as jobs go, it's a pretty marginalized one. But, you know, I also obviously have a lot of other privileges that protect me societally and systemically, uh, which also offset that. So I don't want to, I want to, pay some service to that as well, of course. But I've always felt very accepted within the restaurant community and that's been really wonderful and allowed me to really dive into that and really make that my branding. Whereas I have a lot of friends who are also escorts who are incredible fine artists or who also work in tech and are brilliant coders and they could never tell their work communities about that. And I just really appreciate that the restaurant community has always just been super accepting and there for me, and and that, and the places that particularly make me feel good are the places I go back to, are places that I have felt respected and go back to again and again. And I think that uh, I hope the restaurant community understands that escorts have financial power. We, we are going on work dates again and again and again. We are there. There's <laughs> right. only so many fine dining restaurants. But we're having we're different clients so we're going to go back to the places that we like and that make us feel good and that don't make us feel shitty because we're there obviously on a work date and we also talk so you know i'm really lucky to have knowledge in this sphere so i have a lot of friends that are like hey i've got a client this is what he's into this is what he's not what restaurant should i go to and there's a restaurant that i really love that I counted, I started taking note of how many times I'd eaten there and how many times I had sent people there. And before wine, I know that I am responsible for over $22,000 in sales just in food alone since they opened about three years ago. You know, like escorts have financial power. Some of us have a lot of cash, some of us don't have a lot of cash, but we all have clients with cash.
1: So I wanted to pause here and just highlight the really interesting way in which she articulates how she uh, she gets to know people in the industry. You know, like they relate to each other. They're all weirdos. And it gives her a really unique perspective into the food world that I think a lot of food reporters, like seasoned ones whose job it is to do this, yeah. don't necessarily have. They don't have that perspective.
0: And there's this thing like, uh, I don't know what it is about journalism, but we assume that everyone has to fit within this specific box. Like most publications will hire people as long as they have X, Y, and Z.
1: Right. They went to the right school. They look the right way. They're a culture fit, whatever.
0: And I think what we have to come to realize is that food coverage benefits from people that aren't from these traditional backgrounds. Adalia has more contacts than, I guarantee you, a lot of really great food reporters across the country do. And she probably has better relationships with those sources because they talk to her differently. It's so weird that you have to describe something as looking outside of the box, but I think journalism benefits from not adhering to the structure that we've had in place for so long.
1: Yeah, and when you think about, for instance, restaurant criticism, right, and the way in which you are thought of as having knowledge of fine dining or like a sort of good taste right like good taste is something that's cultivated through time and with a lot of expertise and through experience but how do you get that experience Mm. you know what i mean so how did how did you get it by working in the industry actually working Mm. in fine dining restaurants and (laughs) being on the other side but at the same time you know rarely i would go to these restaurants where my friends worked and then I was able to get like subsidized meals where <laughs> <or> they wouldn't <laughs> let me pay because, you know, we were colleagues. And that was how I was able to check out these places without breaking the bank.
0: This is why Anthony Bourdain's passing was such a big deal to me because like we didn't travel a lot when I was a kid. Like, you know, we didn't have money to to go to like really nice restaurants to, you know, build up my understanding of how like a Michelin starred place would function. I I didn't get any of that stuff. Like I would watch a lot of like travel shows and occasionally if my parents like splurged on something, like if my mom's job had an event at a really nice place, I would go But I I definitely think I relied a lot on like food and travel shows really before I got of an age where I could like save my money together and go out on my own. Yeah, it's just kind of like you cobble together enough perspective to be able to talk about it. Yeah.
1: What I think is really cool about Adalia's story is she's probably gone to so many more fine dining restaurants than like most people. Oh, for sure. But we don't. It's so easy to not respect her. Not to say that we don't personally like me and Justin. Right. But in general it is easy to discount the knowledge that she's gained through her work and through her experience because of the job that she has. I think that that would be really foolish actually. You're listening to the Extra Spicy podcast. We'll be right back after this break. I'm Soleho and I'm back with Adalia Cole. An adult industry professional and owner of the food blog Hungry Hungry Hooker. I wanted to talk about the project that you were doing on Hungry Hungry Hooker, okay? Um, which I think was fantastic and wonderful, and of course, it certainly allowed me to to find out a lot about a lot of really interesting things. I remember you telling me about this project, which was highlighting the side hustles of laid off restaurant workers, of chefs, of cooks, servers, sommeliers. Um, and what have you during the coronavirus pandemic. And so they were doing like what? Uh, Selling bread, selling arepas, selling all kinds of things on the kind of gray market of Instagram. And I would love to hear about what was behind that idea and just
2: how it was received. I just as someone who is also in an industry that is being deeply affected, I have no idea when I'm gonna go back to work i mean i I can't imagine in-person sex work is going to be easy to return to safely for quite some time and i don't really know what i'm going to do um i also know that as the type of worker that i am i'm lucky to have a little bit of savings to hold me over i also you know had my apartment for a really long time so i am in a pretty lucky position you know my husband works in restaurants as i've said so He's laid off right now. So it's it's a little bit of a, an interesting experience, but I can see how difficult it is for people who work in restaurants, especially in the Bay Area, where I believe the, I don't know if they exactly call it the poverty line, but like you're low income in the Bay Area if you make less than $120,000, I believe. It might be for a family of four, but it's it is an astronomically high amount of money compared to most other places in the country. And I mean, I know line cooks are making $18 an hour. It's maybe 20 or 22 at a place in the city that really cares about their workers and making sure people get like a quote unquote fair wage. Cause I mean, even that, it is hard to live on that. No one that I know in kitchens is doing a great job of being able to save money every month. And most people that I know that work in kitchens are living in apartments with several other people well into their 30s. It's not very sustainable, and it makes it really hard to save for a rainy day, let alone an indefinite time period of worldwide health crisis. So I think that one of the things that I think is really cool also about both sex workers and about restaurant industry folks is there's a lot of mutual aid that goes on. I see a lot of people really trying to promote each other, help each other out, someone who has more, giving something to someone who has less, and that person will pass it on down the line. And also, people in both industries are extremely adaptable. This is a crazy situation, and a lot of people are scrambling, and I think that we're both communities of people that are pretty good at landing on our feet. And it's, it's a scramble, it is a desperate panic scramble, but it's also, it's also something that, you know, people are used to solving problems and seeing people start out of their own kitchens while they're laid off, all of these like really cool side hustles to support themselves and try to like get something else going has been really beautiful. And I really love that. And I really respect and admire that spirit and perseverance. And for me, uh, there's not that many things I have to offer, I have, but I have a platform and I can pay people for their food and promote it and talk about it. And um, I I think that not just the food community, but people as a whole really responded to this list when I started putting it together. And it's still being updated. I actually have an update to do later today. But yeah, it's, it's still being updated and the response has been really great. And I've seen other people starting to make Other lists. There's a friend of mine who is starting to do a list of all the cocktail delivery spots in New York right now. Really excited to see that when it comes out and uh, completely unrelated, but there's these kids, uh, Jason and David, who I just saw there. I saw like a post on Reddit. About what they were doing where they made a list of all of the small and mid-sized farms who have been super affected by uh, having all their restaurant accounts be evaporated overnight and who also are now doing direct delivery to people's houses, which is such a blessing for, you know, people like my mom who are, you know, a little bit older and immune compromised. And, you know, it's hard to go to the supermarket, but still want really good high quality fresh food. And I saw that and I was so stoked. And I am I, really glad that I was able to send their info to a couple people that I know that have like a much broader reach and that they were really supportive
1: yeah I was I mean I found so many really cool businesses and just like people I've met so many cool people through those lists and then through doing my own digging which is you know you inspired me to keep digging through Instagram and all these other like alternative modes of advertising and you know like in this time when it's so hard for places to promote themselves or the ones that like don't have the benefit of people walking down the sidewalk anymore right like it's it's even more critical to get that stuff out. So I
2: want to thank you for that. Thank you. I put a lot of work into it. So I really, I appreciate that people have responded well to it and have liked it. And um, I'm glad that we've had some of the same favorites on the list.
1: So I think Adalia explains this pretty well, but I just kind of want to go over it again. So side hustles, basically. Um, What are they? Why do we like them? (laughs) Right. What's the point?
0: Well, I mean it's the it's the job on top of the job, right? Like if you can't if you're not making ends meet, or if you just want to like build up a little bit of extra money, it's the extra job you take. And usually it's not it's not like you're a banker who takes a second job as like a banker, right? It's something that's a little bit more informal. It's an actual hustle. Like you gotta try to make money off of it.
1: Right. And in this time during the pandemic when people are out of work, many of them have been waiting on their unemployment checks for weeks. Right, right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And or the money's running out. Yeah. Or they don't qualify for unemployment because they're undocumented or 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 they have so many reasons to do these other things on top of it. And you know, the licensing for for permitting for cottage cooking, which is legal in California but you need a permit. Um Has completely halted. So even if you wanted to pursue a new venue, like make little cakes at home to sell, you can't do it legally. Right. right. So a lot of these places, a lot of these people are just really just skating by on goodwill and really doing their best. You know, they are professionals and they know the standards and they want to stay healthy and want to keep you healthy, too. It's been really interesting to see everything that's emerged right now.
0: That's the thing. So we're talking about things that emerge right now. What are some cool, like, side hustle food businesses that you've come across? Like, I feel like you've been doing some exploring.
1: I definitely have, in part because of Adalia. She really put a lot of them in front of me. I did a story recently about a few months ago, I guess. God, we've been doing this for a long time. (laughs) Uh, About Singaporean businesses that have popped up. During the pandemic, there are uh, three that have really emerged: Dabao, Singapore, and Makan Place. And Nora Heron has been doing some cooking in Oakland. Super good, super delicious. A great opportunity for people who are mostly immigrants who don't really get unemployment and need to work but aren't getting the kind of hours that they need to like make a living. You know. Yeah. And then there's this guy who delivers arepas by bicycle or actually he has a friend doing the deliveries now because he's gotten so big. And there are people who are making pies out of commercial kitchens that are of restaurants that have closed, for instance. It's really interesting. There's so much and the food is really, really good, too. I haven't been disappointed yet.
0: See, and that's awesome. And this is, you know, we should point out this isn't a new thing like, you know, Uh, In the Bay Area food scene, there have been people who have had side hustles for the longest. Like one of the most popular, a Mission District uh, icon in San Francisco was was the uh, tamale lady. It was uh, Virginia Ramos who unfortunately passed away uh, not too long ago, but she would sell her wares outside of like bars and stuff. And she became like everyone knew her. Everyone knew who she was. And then if you leave the Bay Area, like you got places in LA, like in Compton, um, with Trap Kitchen, who was, you know, it's like this kind of like hip hop influenced soul food business that started out, you know, as a side hustle and became this huge thing. Um, I don't know. I mean, some of the greatest places start off like that.
1: Yeah. And it's really important to note, too, that a lot of the people who do these traditionally, are people who have been otherwise shut out of the food industry, right? And shut out of, air quotes, legitimate business because they can't get credit, right? They can't get loans from banks. They don't have the money for a lease on a commercial space. And so they just take to the streets. You see this all the time with the people who are like grilling um hot dogs wrapped in bacon (laughs) downtown yeah people who are making pupusas outside of churches on mission street it's just the people do this not because they want to do stuff on the street but this is the venue like when we talk about the food industry as a meritocracy
0: yeah this
1: is how it manifests yeah you know what i mean like people are going to find a way to cook food and sell it
0: yeah and that stuff be hidden boy
1: is there anything you'd like to shout out? Where can people find your work? Um, what is the best way to get in touch with you?
2: Uh, well, you can find me, the, the main spot you can find me is on Instagram at hooker. I'm also on Twitter at HungryHooker. And I do have a website, but it's pretty new. And, you know, I, I'm having a hard time connecting my domain. So it's still... www.hungryhungryhooker.squarespace.com. And you can find the list there as well as in my Instagram highlights if you want to look up the Bay Area's um, list of of pandemic side hustles of laid off cooks.
1: Awesome. I love a list, as you know. And (laughs) I love your lists. And thank you so much for talking with me
2: today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it.
1: And that was Adalia Cole. Next up is our segment, Dear Spicy, where Justin and I answer questions from listeners and lizards and dogs and cats and hell creatures from a hole in the Antarctic. (laughs) Well, if there are any hell creatures, actually um, make my wish true and actually write in, please, because I want to hear from you.
0: So the first question is, Dear Spicy, what do you think about foie gras becoming legal in san francisco
1: so technically right it it's legal to sell and cook and like sell once it's cooked but it's not legal to be made or something what is this
0: from from what i understand california businesses still can't sell it and chefs can't give it away but individuals can buy it
1: for delivery.
0: Yeah, it can be shipped to them.
1: Man, that is really convoluted.
0: See, that's what I'm saying. That's why I hate this fucking shit. It's so stupid. <laughs> so, <laughs>
1: tell me more. Where is this rage coming from, Justin?
0: I'm frustrated with this storyline because between 2015 and 2019, when I think it popped back up on menus, like a, a repeal brought it back on the menus, then between 2017 and 2019, like there was a back and forth between foie gras supporters and people who didn't want it served and it's just it is very tiring because as soon as this news breaks you feel like this is it this is the definitive thing this is where it's going to stand and then a couple of months later maybe like a year later you hear you start end up you end up writing the same story it's just very bothersome
1: yeah all this
0: over some goose liver look i get it like force-feeding ducks or you know or Piece, I guess.
1: It looks weird. It looks yes, weird.
0: It's, it, it can be, it's an ugly practice. Sure. But from a journalism standpoint, it's just the back and forth. is just like, good God, let, let, right, the, let right. there be a definitive decision that has no gray area. Like, let's just,
1: let's just decide. It's complicated. And honestly, like it's delicious. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't need it. And I understand that a lot of, you know, there are farmers who depend on the industry for their livings, at the same time, it's just so interesting, right, that foie gras is the symbolic battle, whereas there are so many hens kept in battery cages to right. lay eggs, right. there's so many, you know, pigs that are just beaten to death. <laughs> right. um, it's, it's just a really interesting fight for us to fixate on, oh, on all sides, right? People who are pro or anti, it's just very, it's an odd one, an odd duck. Yeah, exactly. The next question is, Dear Spicy, what should the food industry look like after the pandemic?
0: Ooh, there's like a thousand answers to this.
1: <laughs> right? I mean, we did a pretty fun, big story about the future of restaurants. I think everyone's doing these stories. And I think we're all excited about the idea. But it's also like, no one's really asking what the future of water parks is after the pandemic. <laughs> I mean, maybe right, somebody right. is.
0: Yeah, yeah, But there's something
1: about, like, the investment in restaurants as, like, a cultural icon that makes people so
0: fascinated. One thing that I am hopeful about is that uh, we've – you and I have discussed some of the programs that are helping fund restaurants uh, during the pandemic. And some of them have these um, caveats that the restaurant – well, I won't say some, but there are – these programs out there, they have these caveats where the restaurant has to increase its uh, diversity within its workforce and promote and you know, promise to pay fair wages. and
1: Right, the high road program.
0: Yeah, the high road program does that. And I, want, I, I don't want to say that there's not another one out there, but my hope is that if those things were to proliferate and there were going to be more of them and more restaurants, because um, all restaurants need money and more restaurants sign up for these programs, who knows, like maybe unintentionally we could see the industry improve itself because it needed this money does that make any sense like somehow these programs would make it to where all the things that you and i discuss um, when it comes to like the treat the fair treatment of workers and what we want to see like it could happen through the pandemic because these places are signing up for these programs and these programs have these stipulations attached to them
1: i mean it's so interesting like the the many visions that are competing, right? When restaurants are just kind of scrambling to exist. Yeah. yeah. It's like, do they have time for this program? Like,
2: right.
1: <laughs> and these stipulations, not to say that the program's terms are bad. You right. know, I think it's, it's very wise and very good to think about diversity and inclusivity and fairness and equity in restaurants, certainly, of course, but it's just a really interesting ask to make right now when many of them are just like treading water.
0: Yeah. My hope is that assuming that, you know, everything goes right and we see our way out of this, you know, if restaurants are still trying to use these practices that they were told to use after all this is over, it could be a good thing.
1: Right. I mean, there's so many <laughs> big questions about what people like diners are going to want too after the right. pandemic. Will they right. want hot pot or fondue or korean barbecue or you know in in god in wisconsin there's this restaurant that i talk about a lot that serves spaghetti on a table <laughs> yeah like pour the spaghetti <laughs> on the table right like are people gonna want that anymore
0: uh, i don't know
1: no. i think the things that are trending prior to the pandemic are probably going to exit pretty soon like interesting communal tables for instance yeah. Certain yeah. family style cuisines.
0: You know, I don't think um, beer gardens are going anywhere, and the atmosphere of dining at a beer garden, which is usually mm. like you know, on-site brick pizza oven or like food trucks that are around there, I don't think those are going to go anywhere. I think those will probably become even more popular, even though they already are popular right now.
1: Yeah, but. well, and and I think like the the trends of contactless delivery and takeout are going to stay really strong i think people yeah. actually like that although it's it's the culinary equivalent of having sex at a glory hole you know it's just <laughs> really not a lot of service
0: go <laughs> <happening>. go on
1: <laughs> not a lot of consideration <laughs> right happening. right yeah it it's is not, just uh, sort of impersonal unfortunately it's not pick a lot up, of intimacy drop-off.
0: yeah yeah i just want this pandemic to end man We'll get to the other stuff later on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, for
0: sure. So the next one is, dear spicy. As food eaters and journalists, what do you miss most about restaurants? Oh, that's um, a sad one. Yeah. All right. So, Lay, what do you what do you miss?
1: I miss when you go to Korean barbecue mm. and the nice lady cuts your meat for you. Oh. <laughs> With the big scissors?
0: That's really cute. I miss Aww. that part. You know what I miss? I miss waiting for a group outside of a restaurant, seeing them, like being able to like exchange hugs and stuff, like that fun moment of everyone arriving. And I also miss not being terrified of crowds. Maybe that's more of what it is. There's like an innocence to... Thinking about going to a brunch spot if you were in the mood that day and getting there and it being hella crowded and you being like, this is cool. Like having like a brunch thing with friends.
1: Every time I'm in a somewhat questionable scenario lately where I'm at the park or maybe in line for the grocery store and someone fucking coughs, I just freak. <laughs> I, I like lose my mind.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well,
1: I, I I hope that ends. <laughs> I'm so tired of that.
0: I mean, God forbid that you're the person that does it, too, though. Oh, like,
1: God. Yeah. I, like, I have allergies, right? And, like, right. my sneezes are epic.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And disturbing.
0: See, I did this one, I did this thing one time where, uh, so I sprayed my mask with this, um, you know, bacteria-killing spray one day. And, um I, you know, parked right outside of my apartment, so, you know, I, like, put a different mask that I had on, go to the car, take it off, and I'm like, when I go to the store, I'm going to put this other mask on. So I get out of the car, you know, so I put the mask on, get out of the car, I'm in the store, and I start breathing the fumes from the spray, because I didn't give it enough time to dry off, and then I start coughing. And I'm like, it was the most, it's such a weird experience. When you're like, God, I know everyone. My eyes are watering and stuff because I'm trying to <laughs> hold it in, like <laughs> killing myself, so people don't think I'm sick. It's what, what kind of, what world do we live in now? This is nuts.
1: Well, you don't want to be like, you don't want to be one of the plague people. <laughs> one of the you plague know?
0: people, yeah.
1: And just to make light of it, but really, there's a stigma, and you don't, you don't want to be at the tail end of that. Yeah. Ugh. The day. Some nice, strange lady cuts up my meat, I'll be the happiest girl in the world.
0: Getting that meat cut up.
1: On that note, now that we've been talking about meat, (laughs) (laughs) that is indeed all we have for today's episode. Thanks again to Adalia for being in conversation with me you can read a transcript of the interview with Adalia at sfchronicle.com spicy
0: and remember to send us any questions or voice memos or sky writing or smoke signals you have about food life or anything else that you're obsessed with for our dear spicy advice segment at extra spicy at sfchronicle.com thanks everyone for listening extra spicy is part of
1: the san francisco chronicle podcast network erica carlos is the producer of the show if you like the extra spicy podcast subscribe on apple spotify or wherever you get your podcasts you can find me soleil on twitter at h-o-o-l-e-i-l
0: and me justin phillips at just mr phillips you can support extra spicy and great journalism by signing up for a san francisco chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod